this truly special bonus series for the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, but for this series, you aren't going to hear much of me talking, as I'm going to be listening and learning right along with you as I hand over the mic to a group of phenomenal Black women for Black History Month. Before we jump in, I want to say that learning Black history and listening to Black voices should not be reserved for just a single month of the year. Black history is truly American history, and the critical importance of it threads through the entire fabric of our history. If you don't know Black history, you don't know American history. So this series is an attempt to bring more Black women's voices and stories to the forefront and learn firsthand from the women who know what it means to be a Black woman in America. If you listened to the series last February, you know that author Marcy Elvis Walker from Black Coffee with White Friends took the lead for the topics that we discussed each week. And I'm honored that she's agreed to do the same thing this year as we pay tribute to Black motherhood. In this episode, Marcy is joined by historian Letty Gore, speaker and host Chase Sears Beerfield, educator Naya Abernathy, and Dr. Quintrilla Ard as they discuss the history of the Black womb. Please know, the content of this episode may be triggering for some, and the language is probably not for super young ears. As always, the goal for sharing these stories and this real true history is not to create more trauma, but rather to acknowledge the trauma that has been done to black bodies since this country began, and to bring more black women's stories out of the darkness and into the light. Okay, ladies, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast for this special, special, special series during Black History Month. Thank you all for being here. We have five ladies joining us today. I'm going to start with Marcy doing just a quick introduction. And then Marcy also in that introduction, can you just tell us, since I said you're kind of the brains and the idea behind this series, why you decided and wanted to do a series on Black motherhood? I'm Marcy Alvis Walker, and I'm a writer and creator, newsletter maker, a lot of different hats. You can follow me at Black Coffee of White Friends, Mockingbird History, but mostly Black Coffee of White Friends. You and I have been friends for a couple years now. And we, is when we first talked, yes. Yeah, and it's been interesting to have an honest relationship with a white mother. I haven't always had that with other white moms where I've been able to share what it is for me to be a mother um, without them interjecting themselves into stuff that really isn't about them. So there's that. And as you and I started to dissect all those things that make my parenting different from your parenting and the things that we face, I felt like we don't understand how this country was built from the black womb. And I know that people are going to be like, that's not true, but it's like, that is absolutely true. There's no United States of America without the black woman and her reproduction. It's just that. And I read an article written by Imani Perry uh, where she interviewed the mother of Tamir Rice. And it just broke me to hear this mother. Tamir Rice was a, a young boy who was killed by police for playing with a toy gun in the park. I think at the time he was 12, something like that, really a baby, he was a baby. And to hear her talk about what it, how she had the fight to be allowed to be a mother, 
and to have autonomy in her mother and her mothering was hard and then to also read articles with Michael Brown's mom words that haunt me is Michael Brown's mom saying you her first words were you don't know how hard I had to work to get him just to graduate from high school and then his life is gone I think of Trayvon Martin's mom um, Sabrina Fulton Serena Fulton and her saying that in Ta-Nehisi Coates book between the world and me her telling Ta-Nehisi Coates' son, you have a right to wear a hoodie, you have a right to, you know, it's like she's building up this young boy who she's mothering too um, after her own son had been taken. And she still has to go on mothering, y'all. We forget. These women still have other children that they are going on and mothering in this grief and tragedy. And I think there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of strength to be gained. I think there's a lot to mourn. But first and foremost, I think there's a lot that white women in particular can learn from black mothering. Because I've been in a lot of rooms where I've heard a lot of white moms talk about issues that weren't issues, to be frank. You know, I've heard moms worry about what college their kids is going to get in. I'm like, your baby's going to college. You and I both know that. Um, I've worried about, you know, the grades, this, that, and the other. I'm over here worrying about my my kids' autonomy, her, their life, um, if they're going to make it home, if they're going to be passed over because of the, you know, problems. So, um... I think that there's a lot to be gained. And I think because white mothers put so much hierarchy in their mothering, it has caused a lot of suppression across the nation. So white mothers clutching their pearls and being so worried about the safety of their babies has caused harm to just about every other life that's not a white child in this world and it's a problem and we need to talk about that i didn't know i was gonna go there y'all but i got a little heated so but it needs to be said Thank you, Marcy. Quintrilla, would you mind introducing yourself? You're a, a new face to the series this year, and I'm just so so thrilled to have you. I know this whole topic is a passion for you and just a daily part of your life. So can you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Good morning or afternoon, whatever time you're hearing this, everyone. My name is Quantrilla Ard. I am a academic. I'm a PhD. I am a mom, a wife, a creator, a writer, a speaker. I have all the hats and I love all of them. And it is finally taking me to my 41st year to really enjoy every facet of who I am. Um, I believe in the beauty and the simplicity and the love of Black women and how we mother our children. And so my particular part is research and advocacy that helps to eliminate negative birth outcomes for Black mamas and babies. There is a harrowing situation that we are, I don't want to say we're just now seeing it, but unfortunately, uh, things that happen to Black women specifically are usually overlooked until it becomes a national political agenda. So in the past maybe five or so years, you will have noticed that there is an increased visibility of the um, birth crisis that is happening, and it is specifically 
uh, focusing on women of color and uh, birthing people of color. So my job, I believe my job is to advocate for voices who were traditionally and systematically and historically oppressed and silenced. So my research is focused on how racism impacts the lives of Black and brown birthing people and their babies. So I'm happy to add my voice to the story and bring the voices of all of the voices that have not been heard with me. So it's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you all today. We're so, so grateful for your voice. And I should probably call you doctor. Well, you can if you like. We're excited to hear from you, Quantrella. Thank you. Naya, would you introduce yourself and tell a little bit about yourself? Yes. Hello. Thank y'all so much for inviting me. Um, It's really a pleasure and an honor to share space with you ladies. Uh, My name is Naya Abernathy. I'm the founder of The Dignity Effect. Uh, The Dignity Effect is a social emotional educational platform for grownups. I really focus on laying a foundation where people know of their own as well as others Uh, worth and value, the intrinsic worth and value. And then I build off of that, how to be in healthy relationship with yourself, as well as with others, whether it's family or vocational relationships, your neighbors, strangers. And I even invite people into considering the dignity of their enemy. I will say that does not mean that we hold hands and skip around with our enemy. A lot of times honoring the enemy, uh, honoring the dignity of your enemy means first truth telling. Um, and so I'm, I'm really grateful to, to be invited into this space where we tell the truth about things that have not been talked about and the ways that systems and things and people have um, postured themselves or been created as enemies against Black women, Black motherhood. And what does that mean? And how can we stop that so that my five-year-old when she is, uh, has a desire to become a Black mother, if that is her desire, does not have to deal with the dehumanizing things that we see now that we have in our some of our family history. I know it's in my family history, the elders and ancestors who have had to deal with. Thank you, Naya. Shay, you've been on before, but for those who somehow don't know you, can you just introduce yourself? My name is Shay Sears-Bearfield. Um, I'm from Freeport, Bahamas. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina with my family. Um, I am the creator and talk show host for The Shay Show. And I like to think of myself as someone who curates meaningful conversations with people around the world, talking about things that are important to us and invariably talking about things that are important to everyone. The goal is to remind everybody how amazing they are. When we know we're amazing, we behave differently. And you have a, is your daughter, how old is your daughter? 14, Shay? Yeah, she is 14. Okay. These are these are the bewitching years for me. <laughs> so you can talk about Black motherhood, can't you? Yes, I am the mother of a, of a daughter in who has come into her teenage years in this panorama that we won't get out of for a while. And so mothering and mothering well and protective and freely, all these tensions exist. And I am feeling, I am feeling the blackness in my mothering specifically in this era. Like even if I didn't want to, 
I'm feeling the blackness of my mother. We'll talk a lot more about that, Shay. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being here. And then Letty, I saved you for last because you were going to do a lot of the talking to start out with. So I just figured we would have you introduce yourself to, again, for somehow folks that don't know you, you've been on this podcast a couple of times, you have your own, you have your own huge platform, you are a historian. So introduce yourself, Letty, and then we'll dive into today's topic with you. Thanks. Thanks. Um, my name is Letty Gore. Matter of fact, on the podcast last year here and then before whenever I was on this podcast back in I think 2020 uh, my last name was Shoemate so but I got divorced last year that was finalized and so I'm back to Gore and I'm very very happy about it uh, so yay <laughs> but yeah Letty Gore I'm a historian I'm a podcast host my podcast is called History Shows Us and I'm a racial justice educator. And <laughs> I've actually, whenever I say that I'm a historian, I've had conversations about this recently, the issue with people wanting to call people things that aren't that, right? <laughs> because just because you love history or something doesn't make you a historian. And so I like to tell people and show people what it really means to be that with how I connect the history. It's much more than just retelling. Anyone can Google something, but unless you can connect all the things, right, and understand the deeper roots and have a methodology and all these things, then that's how, that's how we come to understand the very thing we're going to be talking about today. Um, so yeah, I live here in Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm not a mother. Well, I'm a kitten mother. I'm a, a seven-month-old kitten that Y'all are probably here during this because she's chosen to act all the ways since I'm on the Zoom conversation now. But anyway, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. And this is going to be a heavy convo, but it's necessary. So, yeah, it really is. And going back to you're not a mother, but you are a daughter of a black mother. So yeah. I think that's an important important thing to remember with, with all of you that you it's, you're still part of this. So yeah, Letty today we are, as Marcy alluded to a little bit earlier, we're going to talk about the history of the black womb. And this is a really, really hard topic. And I'm going to just let you dive in where you think Letty, um, as Marcy said, the wombs of black women really built this country. This country wouldn't even exist really without them. Most American slaves were not kidnapped on other continents. Yeah. So honestly, whenever I was figuring out how to frame this, I was like, yeah, where do we start? Because it's all, it's all of it. Like nothing is separate. Like none of it's isolated, none of it. Right. And I think what happens with history is people want to take pieces out and just only look at that. And I'm like, no, you can't with this. Like you literally cannot, you can connect 1775 and enslaved Black women to Fannie Lou Hamer in 1961, whenever her uterus was taken out of her. Like you, you can directly connect all of this, right? And so I have a few notes that I took, which is not abnormal for me. And by a few notes, I mean like five pages. It's fine. But I didn't want to leave anything out. <laughs> And so I was sitting here earlier this week with these books everywhere and trying to look through them again and on my computer with documents because I want to just draw some connections um, for y'all and for the listeners. But I guess the place to start, right, um, since we're the first thing I have here is about breeding farms um, is really to also just like clear up some ideas about breeding farms. Right. So 
Also, I want to say I use the language of um, I usually say in enslaved people, but there will be times I'm going to say slave farms because it's how it appears in some books and for people to understand. So thank you for saying that, because I did say most American slaves and I was reading from something I had copied and I did not say enslaved. So, yeah, that's a, the term to be using. So thank you for that, Letty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's it's easy to not because of how we've mm-hmm. always seen it. Right. But it's saying mm-hmm. enslaved people humanizes um, the black people who were stolen and who were brutalized. And I also say enslaver instead of slave owner, because the enslaver uh, that gives accountability um, to the violence. And yeah, so breeding farms, people have this idea, right, that breeding farms were separate from plantations. And that's not true. Uh, before there, there aren't many books that you'll find that directly define and talk about breeding farms. Um, but you have to understand that all plantations were those. So they were that. Um, you had some that were used specifically for that reason, for um, the reproduction of enslaved children and for profit, but it's not said outright. And so um, you have historians before who would be like, oh, well, I mean, maybe they existed, maybe not. But the last decade or last 15 years, you've had more scholars who say, actually, we have to understand the definition of what a breeding farm was. So, yeah, so like a very simple definition of breeding farms, but it's not very helpful, is the complex system of businesses and people who profited from the enslavement of Black children at birth. It's a very simple definition. Um, But actually, uh, the breeding of enslaved people was this coercive and violent, um, brutal, horrific system of like reproductive and sexual practices that prevented enslaved people um, from controlling their sexuality and families. And I say enslaved people because this also included um, men uh, because of how breeding happened. However, there's a much more complex story that goes with black enslaved women, because really the function of breeding farms was just to produce as many enslaved people as possible for sale and distribution. And you have to understand too, that whenever the international slave trade was banned in 1808 um, by Congress, this did not, this did not take away the fact that in the Constitution of the United States before 1808, there is an article that says that has in there um, or had in there information of what said basically the importation of enslaved people is allowed and is permitted. That was in the Constitution. So they had to reword that. And I say quotations with that because they didn't really do that. It just kind of made it sound like they're not going to do what they continue to do. Um, But what happened, though, is people look at this. Right. And they say, oh, well, they banned it. So this 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 doesn't happen anymore. But it did. And that's why you had a more (sighs) larger number of breeding farms um, around the 1820s and the 1830s. Uh, most of them were in Virginia and were in Maryland. Virginia had the largest number of enslaved people and the ratio of enslaved Black women to enslaved Black men on many of the plantations was two to one. So if the ratio is two to one and you have these white racist people, right, who own these enslaved people that they don't even see as people, they're like, oh my gosh, how, how are we going to keep making our money? 
oh, well, what do we have to do? Well, we're just going to rape them. We're going to force them to have, we're going to allow their husbands, their fathers, their brothers, their own children um, to rape them. And there were ways they did this. Uh, the way that you also are able to know that these things happen is because if you look at things like the Federal Writers Project, um, if you look at the narratives of enslaved people, they talk explicitly, many of the Black enslaved, formerly Black enslaved women, they talk explicitly about the violence and the sexual assault that they experienced. That's how you know that the breeding happened. It's not because you have these journals and these things that are written by the enslavers. It's because of the words of the Black women that experience this. So that's what history shows, right, is you, you have to know what to look at in order to understand what actually happened. So because uh, you can find articles that say they didn't exactly. I was reading this morning when I Googled it. No, they absolutely did not exist by a white man historian. So mm-hmm. clearly we want to still deny that that history. But like you just said, yeah. history shows us actual proof shows us that this was real. Okay. Yeah. And it's like. The, the number, right, because often too what happens is people say, oh, well, then how, how many slave breeders were there? Well, there is not like a definitive number. It's not a definitive number. It's unknown. Um, and it's made to appear that like, oh, it was just a few of them. No, but actually not, because at one point, not at one point, from much of 1830s to the end of the Civil War, the largest production of profit for this country was enslaved people. It was not tobacco. It was not sugar. It was not, no, it was literally enslaved people, right? And enslaved children. And you have to not take slave breeding farms and separate that from what it was like on these plantations, because it's not like there was just a place that just functioned a certain way. I mean, you you had people, um, this man named Robert Wimkin, who had a slave jail. And in this slave jail, he would keep these black women and black men and black children, and they would be tortured. Um, They would be forced to have sex with whoever. Um, Often too, it was the enslavers or their children or their friends or the governor or the mayor or the state senator who came and they were allowed to do whatever they wanted to do. And this is how people need to understand history. You cannot look at it as these old backwoods country, redneck white people. No, 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 no. You also had things like the Fugitive Slave Act, right, of 1850, where you can look at it and say, oh, it's just because they wanted their their property back. Nah, it's because they wanted them back in order to rape them and they wanted to be able to profit off them. So it, you've got to always include sexual violence when you're talking about slavery, because if you don't, you're not, you're not talking about it. It was not just about labor in the fields and these romanticized ideas of what it was like in some places or some people were treated well, hell no, no, it's not in at all. Could I just yeah. interject something real? Absolutely, Shay. Yeah. I just wanted to say, like, clearly, if thank you so much, um, Professor Letty, um, because as you're speaking, it would first the reason why you, Andrea, could find articles that said, in fact, this did not happen. 
is because you have to first consider who will you listen to? And she's saying that it doesn't exist in terms of tablets and uh, scribing. It exists from the telling of these stories by black women, by black mothers, by black women who had been the recipient of this harsh treatment. So if we're not going to listen to them, we're not going to hear it. And if we do hear it, we're not going to believe them. So that's why you could find an article that says that. Um, then two, to what Letty was saying, if if you are taking it as a business, if it really is a business, then I'm going to call bullshit on you when you say that you actually weren't doing anything to make your business grow. And, because anybody who has a business, the purpose of your business is to make money, is to grow, is to become a bigger business. So if we really are a business and the way that you get more of said product is by virtue of having children why would it not be a logical progression that you would in fact make people do this behavior in order to propagate more of the product hey letty correct me if i'm wrong but in 1808 when they banned the transatlantic slave trade that actually was to increase the United States profit. And it did, right? Because they didn't want all their money going elsewhere. They wanted it here. So it wasn't like, oh, we're getting, you know, whatever, more woke and kinder to the enslaved. It was, no, we want to increase profit here. Is that right? Yeah. No, it it had nothing to do with, oh, this is bad. And literally nothing to do with that. Actually, to what it was is um, like everything else with our country. uh, We were angry at other countries for not wanting to do what we wanted them to do. It's 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 always something that that we're doing that's unnecessary. Um, And yeah, uh, it was in order to allow the money to go directly or to continue to circulate directly in the United States. Um, I remember I was working on whenever I was working on my master's in history, this is back in 2013, 2012, 2013, I remember uh, diving into this and um, the number of people who think, right? Like, oh, but the country stopped it. And so it was just, it, it was just these people that just wanted to continue to be racist in the South. Am I actually not like you still had um, enslaved black people that escaped or black people who were free in the northern states that were actually still also bred and then shipped to the south on railroads and all these things. So it wasn't just the boats, wasn't just the ships that were bringing them to different places, to ports like Wilmington, North Carolina and Charleston and places in Louisiana. No, it was also railroads. It was also um, trains. And so you have to think about who owns the railroads, who owned the, tra- like who owned that, right? Who owned these, who owned these businesses, these companies, right? You can trace it to JP Morgan. You can trace it, you, you, you can trace it to Rockefeller. You can tra- trace it to Wa- Wachovia Bank today, Pepsi, Coca-Cola. Like you can literally, you can trace it if you know how to find it. Um, so yeah, and I, I just wanted to say, because I know there are Christians listening, um, it also debunks the whole myth of we were going there to get the savages to save their Christian, to, to, to save their souls. That debunks the whole of that. Because the truth was that they really valued a brat, a, a, a slave that, an enslaved child that was born in the states by two um, enslaved people who were already part of the United States. They were even patriotic about that. 
So, you know, they didn't want to have to, it's kind of like with business, they want to have to train new people. You know, they didn't want to have to break a new, a new filly in. They wanted, they wanted to, they have pedigrees. There were certain um, families that were of a stronger stock, you know, of intelligence, of beauty. Um, it was very much like how they treated any other livestock because they didn't see them as being human. And it's exactly like Naya just uh, messaged. They were basically like dogs to them. I think they treated their dogs maybe a little bit better. The dogs at least got some scraps from the table and, you know, got the rum free. You know what I mean? But they treated the pedigree certainly like that. Like, you know, so we have to. So when Christians are just like, well, isn't it a good thing because now we have all. No, Christ was already and every other God was already in Africa. That's where it all came from. Any religion that you want to point to, it came out of the birth of the whole earth. So, you know, no. Black folks knew who Jesus was and they knew who all the other gods were. They didn't need white Americans or British people. And also, if you're British or you're from um, Europe, you had investments. Like it was a trans, even though we weren't sharing bodies, it was transatlantic, the, the money was. So, and even though England didn't have slaves in their own country, they were colonizing and France was colonizing. And those colonizers in all those other lands where they, when you see a flag and it's got a little British flag in the corner of it, that's a colonized nation. That's what that means. So it's got a little French flag. That's a colonized nation. And they were colonizing those wombs too. They were doing that as well. And then when it no longer benefited them, they started to sterilize. That's what I wanted to move into because it's like, how do you go from one extreme to the other? Um, real quick before that, I think it's worth mentioning that book One Drop again, because like you were just talking about, quote, pedigree. I mean, that's, and Letty, you can maybe speak into that a minute, but just how the lineage, they looked at the mom because so many of the rapists, they were the white, the white men. And they sure didn't want the line and the property going to, the children that had the black mother. So that's why they started looking at, oh, even one drop, one drop from the mom, like it's all on the mom's side. Um, so that's, that, that's a book I would just highly recommend people to dive into and look at and Shay, your interview too with the author. So we could probably do a whole episode on that. Letty, let's move into how did we get then to sterilization? And obviously we're skipping over so, so much for, for the sake of time. Like when you started out, you said, you know, this Forced rapes, the breeding farms are all connected, even to Fannie Lou Hamer and the forced sterilization. So tell us how we get there. Yeah. Um, yeah, we could just talk all about just what I'm about to talk about for a minute. Um, but often there's a part that's missed is, um, is because this history is also like romanticized is the eugenics movement. There would have been no sterilization of black women had it not been for slavery, and the eugenics movement. But it's because when people think of eugenics, they just think of Europe and they think of Nazis, right? And I'm like, y'all know that the eugenics movement started before Hitler was even doing the whole Third Reich. 
uh, genocide, murder of Jewish and disabled people. You do know that, right? Like the eugenics movement existed before that. So, um, but also in order to even get to that real quick, it's like um, understanding like enslaved women and pregnancy and the prophet and also doctors and how doctors played a role and they had these agreements with um, the enslavers. And there was something called the soundness practice, which was this unspoken practice that these doctors and I say doctors in quotations because they were some they were mostly people who had maybe two months to a year of education so not doctors um just people who deem themselves doctors so there's that um whatever but uh so you also had um right this this obsession with uh, the reproduction of enslaved black women and girls so it wasn't just women it was also girls as young as 12 and 13 um and every year from like 1750 until emancipation or i would argue after that to 1867 1868 um one of every five black women that were at the childbearing age were giving birth so childbearing age at the time was considered 14 to 44 uh so that's horrific but Okay. Um, all of it is, but wow. And so you also though had a lot of the science, right? He, like you, so you had these scientists and these doctors that were claiming um, that the nervous systems of black people were immune to physical and also emotional pain. Okay. And so that's what justified, right? Oh, well, they actually aren't feeling that Well, This is actually not what we're doing. Um, but at the same time, right, you had these other stereotypes about enslaved black women and black men and um, promiscuity and the Jezebel, all of this goes into it. Right. And then you get to the eugenics movement and you have doctors like um, Harry Heiselden in 1915, who were basically trying to say that certain people were unfit because they were genetically inferior. And then you're like, oh, well, who was considered genetically inferior? Black people, which is ironic because y'all were wanting us to do everything. And we birthed this country and we allowed this country to even exist where it was. So there's a lot of like, that doesn't make sense stuff in history, like make it make sense. So you have a lot of these doctors and scientists that are starting to say, oh, well, oh, these people, we, we've got to get rid of those that aren't fit. Got to get rid of those that aren't going to help us. And so you started deeming certain babies and people as not worthy of life. And you started to have, um, there was this film called The Black Stork by Dr. Heiselden and in it, he showed this enslaved black woman who seduced her white enslaver. And then she had this baby, but it had a drop of black blood and tainted his family. And we don't want that. We don't want anything to taint white people and white supremacy. So we've got to get rid of those who are unfit. They didn't explicitly say sometimes, right? Black people, but you don't need to explicitly say things. Come, come on. Come on, right? And so then you start to see as the eugenics movement goes on, you start to see how it was appropriated to label Black women as sexually indiscriminate, as bad mothers um, who were constrained by biology to give birth because children were not worthy. 
I think it's really important. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just going to jump in. I think it's you. I love if you're not connected to Letty's Patreon, you really should be because what she's doing with history is that whole link from how do we there's this thing that Amber Ruffin if you guys are familiar with that um, comedian where she does this little segment called how did we get here well that's what Letty's offering with Patreon her Patreon is how do how do we get here um, so with Contrilla doing Quantrilla doing the um, Dr. Quantrilla doing the um, her is it called a dissertation I'm not an academic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a dissertation yeah. on reproductive. How do we get to the point where the more mortality rate for um, black women who are having babies and their ba- ba- their babies is so just crazy numbers different than a white woman having a baby? Well, it comes from what Letty was saying. First of all, when we say that we're in pain, they don't believe us. I'm dealing with reproductive pain right now because I've been going from doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor because they don't believe it. They believe that there's some moral failure on the part of black women that causes them to be less capable of understanding pain. Right. And so you have and it goes, it doesn't matter who you are. You have Beyonce having nightmarish stories about having her babies. You have Serena Williams having nightmarish stories about having her babies. Most black women, I remember after having my kid and almost dying and I was we were the only black family on the ward and sitting there afterwards after. I went into labor four o'clock in the afternoon. I did not have my child until 6.38 the next day. And it ended up being an emergency C-section that I knew I needed before I even went into the, that I'd said that I needed before we even started labor. And I remember I had to have my ex-husband close the door because babies were popping out all over the place around me. Like, I would watch a white woman come in, I'm not even kidding you, and it seemed like 10 minutes later she was holding her baby, you know? So, and I know something was up because they had, um, I forget what you call it, but the people who regulate, like to make sure that I wouldn't sue the hospital, come and interview me, and my mother-in-law was in medical records and medical information, so she was on top of things, and she wasn't having it. And the, I happened to have a black nurse who bawled her eyes out in apology for what I suffered. And I'm just one person, right? But you times that all black women who, who are getting pregnant. And then on the flip side, you have the opposite of that. You have the stereotype that we've inherited as black women where we question why a woman doesn't have a baby, right? So if a woman, I've only had one child, and believe me, people question for, it took me a long time to get pregnant. And then when I finally did get pregnant, people were just like, well, it's about time. But then when I didn't get pregnant again, 
people had questions about that or if you've never had a baby as a black woman and you, and you are of a certain age people aren't looking at you in the black community there's a lot of there's a lot of shame around that like how come you haven't had babies yet because we've been told that that's what we're good at doing and yet we're just as human as any other human being and we're not all meant to physically reproduce that's just the way the cookie crumbles and um, we don't like to look at that right and we we won't accept that so when a white woman says that they can't have a baby let me tell you the whole world thinks that the angels in heaven should stop what they're doing and you know they can have and it's fine for them to go out and get whatever baby they need to get to make themselves feel better watch the movie serve the tv show servant you know like whatever need, they need to do to make this woman feel like she's a mother but if a black woman is facing the same infertility the same reproduction challenges well well that's just the win for america because we don't need no more black babies ain't nobody concerned about that really and that's the truth and you know what we got all these white babies that they can be a nanny for but we can't adopt them. They don't want us adopting them, you know? So, so Marcy, um, I'm a, I want to say this real quick too, with what you were saying, because I'm, 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 I'll be 34 in um, June. And I went, whenever I was married, um, my parents have never pushed having children. My parents, they've always been very much like your body, your choice, um, whatever that is. Right. And that's, and it's interesting too, right? Because I am the daughter of a preacher. And so people assume that because I grew up in a black Baptist household, I didn't grow up in like the church like that going all the time, like not being forced to because, you know, my parents were not um, insane. But, um, <laughs> but people assume that because I grew up that way and then, oh, well, you should know these xyz things like no my parents are also bessie and milton gore they're their own people and they're black and they understand they've seen things like my my mom has had family members that were sterilized she they're still alive still alive i know them that were sterilized um this is not a long time ago (laughs) right i mean granted my parents are 70 and 76 but still it's not a long time ago and I've had people ask me, like whenever I was married, they'd say, oh, well, you don't want children. Like, you don't know what I've gone through. You have no idea. Right. And so it's 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 what you were saying, Marcy, with um, how people look at us as we're supposed to just be having babies. But also, like, you don't know what I've experienced. You don't know if I've had a miscarriage. You don't know if I have in, infertility issues. You don't know if I've had an abortion. You don't know, and it's none of your damn business, right? Like, why is that your? Why is that the first thing? Why is that it, right? Like, why, I've I've never. It's 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 so infuriating to me um, because what it's doing is it's reinforcing right the exact same system that people are saying they want to dismantle. Okay, well, you need to go deal with yourself and ask yourself why you want to ask us that. And then, and then in, in the same breath, look at us black women um, as feeding off the government, right? Like the, the, the whole stereotype of the welfare mother, um, right. Who an enti- who a president of this United States campaigned on, right. This idea that got him elected Reagan and others before and 
after him surprise uh <laughs> but yeah so i that that just resonated with 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 me personally so thank you for saying that i would like uh-huh. to just say something that Letty said earlier in the conversation when she was bringing in the fact that this wasn't just happening to um the breeding is just not something that happens to women it's not to minimize what's happening what happened to black women but that she was like but the men too. We have to understand that. And it takes me to um, the scene in uh, Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad that I would, I couldn't watch all of it just because it was too much, but you recognize the trauma. It was really good in being able to visualize the trauma that happened to the whole of these two different human beings, the black men and the black women. And in this image, in this scene, um, the white slave master is sitting in the corner of the room and uh, this uh, black enslaved man, uh, a light skinned guy, clearly um, the child of the master and one of the enslaved women. Uh, And he is just so handsome and beautiful. And, and the reason why I'm telling you that is because everybody talks about that and he's big and he's strong. And there's a woman who is a force. She's an enslaved, dark skin, forceful woman. And she is the type of woman they know they will have some of the most amazing, strong, you know, oxes out there in the field. And I, I couldn't go further in this show, but I'm pretty sure the light skin enslaved man is gay and he is just broken by being made to have sex with this woman who, by the way, is like his, his, his friend, you know what I mean? Like, She's like that girl that he goes to and they talk about shit late into the night. And and I think it just made it so real to know this was the experience of so many people. And it does speak to today. Like he has he is made to get naked. Everybody's made to get naked. He is made to get erect in front of this man sitting in the corner. I mean, I think we need to think about what we're really saying to what Letty's saying. It, don't whitewash this. Don't make it sound like, oh, and they was just out in the field, just working hard. That it was just it was just a labor thing. No, it actually was a very cruel and disgusting. Like uh, something came to me the other day, and I said, "White supremacy it has a cost." And the cost is your humanity. It is an expensive thing. Because when I think of the man who was able to sit in the corner of that room and make him get erect in front of him, why would you even want to be that type of person? You know what I mean? Why would you even want to be that? That's why I'm, I'm for white supremacy, saving white people. I'm like, you don't want to be what this thing wants you to be. And, and this is why y'all shouldn't be getting married at plant um, work camps, really. And don't drag your children out into a field of cotton for your family picture. You know, just stop all these shenanigans. Stop romanticizing. I have a jar of a vase of, um, I'll show y'all, you guys can see it. I have this vase. It's a woman's body and it's full of cotton to remind me of why I work and what 
needs to be said and what needs to be done so I remember what happened. But what I'm not going to do is like your photos in cotton fields and your wedding venues on work camps. You wouldn't go to Auschwitz to have a wedding or a family reunion. And we really need to start looking at these places for what they were. Um, I really want to hear, because we're talking a lot about the history, but Contrilla, I would love, Quantrilla, I would love for you, doctor, to tell us what are the stats? Like, what, what are we looking at when we are talking about black reproduction, when we're talking about um, what's happening to black women in the maternity wards? I, I don't know how many people have read um, Thick by Tressie McMillan Cotton, but she writes about losing her baby, complaining and complaining that something was wrong and being told to sit and wait. And then when she lost the baby, delivered the baby, she had to sit and hold her dead baby um, out in like a waiting chair area, like, you know, just out in the open, not even by her, just by herself, because they had kind of dropped the ball and forgotten to check back on her. And when I think about the griefs and the burdens that a lot of our sisters are facing, bringing life into the world. Um, and then I think about the legislation that's happening right now to control and say what we do with our bodies and the disconnect of that and the pro-life movement because that's not inclusive of all life, you know? So if you wanna say that you're pro-unborn babies, go right ahead. <laughs> Because if you're pro-unborn babies, keep doing what you're doing, vote for who you want to vote for. But if you're saying that you're pro-life, you really need to check what life you're for. Um, I have done this work for probably 10 plus years. And listening to Letty just reinform some of us, right? Inform for some and reinform for, for most of us the reality of what life was like for enslaved people. My voice is shaking because I had a visceral emotional reaction to hearing it. Not because I haven't heard it before, but on this side of my experience as a Black mother, as a Black mother who was a statistic. I feel the collective and generational trauma. And why I do research and advocacy is, like you said, Marcy, you want to be sure that your child, or was that, uh, that was Naya, right? We were saying that we wanted to be sure that our children do not experience the same things that we and our grandmothers and our mothers have experienced. So what it looks like today, from what I have read and from what I have seen and studied and Black women, African-American women are three to four times more likely to have their babies die in the first year uh, compared to white women. And this is specifically interesting because there is an educational component to it. So this study specifically looks at college-educated Black women compared to white women who have not even graduated high school. 
So I thought that was extremely interesting because now we're looking at issues of social economic status being um, compounded on top of experiences that minority women are already having in, in the United States. Now, there's several things that work there. There's systems of oppression. We're looking at systems that include education. We're looking at privilege. We're looking at the intersection of all of these different situations that kind of form this barrier for Black and brown women to not just to reproduce, but to save the lives of their children. What really got me on the road and the journey to research this topic was my own experience. My first pregnancy, I developed preeclampsia. And preeclampsia is a condition that happens where your blood pressure is so elevated that it literally can kill you and your child. And so, um, you know, I had, I developed preeclampsia and more so than I developed preeclampsia was the response to what happened. And in, in this, this situation, I felt as if I was not heard. I felt that it didn't matter that I was in pain. And again, these are the, the same things that we keep hearing over and over and over again. Um, I ended up having to have an emergency C-section and I felt them cut me open because they did not hear me when I said, I feel pain. And so the dismissiveness, the, um, the silencing of Black women in these birthing spaces is traumatizing. And there is the thought that we have to go into these spaces and somehow water ourselves down or lessen who we are because we don't want to be seen as uh, a bad patient or we don't want to be seen as angry Black women or we don't want to be seen as extra. But in reality, there is a certain level of pain that you're going to experience bringing children into the world. That's just how it goes. But if there's something that is bothering you or something that is abnormally painful, or if people are just treating you as if you are literally just some burdensome animal in their bed, then that is where the problem exists. We have medical professionals who do not believe that Black women feel pain, as we spoke about earlier. We have medical professionals who do not believe that in the year of our Lord, 2022, that Black women should be in these hospitals having babies. And do so they say that? Say do, they, do they affirmatively say that? Or is there some other way that they articulate that without um, saying those words? I'm just curious. I want people well, it's, to be, It's a combination of both. It's a combination of both because there are studies where you have first year medical students saying that they don't believe that Black women feel pain. Right. Then you have based on what? What are they basing that very um, I mean, that sounds so obtuse to me. So I'm just trying to understand what would what would that be based on? It's it's a bias. It is a it is a unspoken um, mentality that exists that somewhere in their training, they have either heard it 
or seen it being practiced, which to me is the more egregious because yeah, I can say something to you, but I may forget what you said, but I'm never gonna, I'm never going to forget what I've watched you do. So even in a system where they are watching other physicians treat black women, they're forming their own internal biases as medical professionals. And so again, it's being perpetuated from each generation to the next generation to the next generation. So so naive sometimes. I was hopeful no that when you would actually hear yourselves articulate those words that black women don't feel pain. You ever say something that shows you what your heart believes and it's shocking to you? You would hope, you would hope, but it- Trilla, I'm like, can I interrupt one second? Yes. I'm just gonna interject and maybe- because I think maybe this ties into it. I'm trying to think like Letty tying in. Just on reading the guy known as the father of American gynecology, J. Marion Sims, who developed techniques by literally cutting open the vaginal tissues and wombs of enslaved women. And he refused to give them any anesthesia saying that they either didn't feel pain or he just ignored their pain. So I can see how it ripples into that. Absolutely. Okay. And then you know, he's, he's deified, right? As this great father of modern gynecology. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yet even, you know, and I talk about having a C-section, even that, the fact that I'm able to have a C-section or the fact that we're able to have epidurals to, you know, have relatively pain-free deliveries is on the burden and the backs of enslaved Black women who did not give their consent, who were forced into brutal and horrific experiments so that today we could choose. And there's people who elect to have C-section. That would never have been my choice because there, there are even issues with racism and discrimination when it comes to cesarean sections. But we know that it is a life-saving procedure for women who need it. But so that is the that is the infant mortality side. When we look at maternal mortality, the rates are very similar. So again, college-educated Black women, according to Dr. Wanda Bearfield, she's the director of reproductive health. Uh, she's t- she says that African-American college-educated women are five times more likely to die for childbirth-related complications than a white woman with a high school diploma. And so again, we see that same correlation of having this, this educational component that we know is a part of uh, social economic standing in the United States. Um, also uh, having these differences, these huge gaps um, in rates for these two groups of women. And 60% is what the CDC says is preventable. I personally believe that it is a higher percentage um, because I've lived it, but these are preventable issues, but yet black and brown women are bearing the brunt of these deaths. Um, and it is tragic. It is, it is scary because, you know, we have generations of women who are, you know, coming up who may make different choices about their reproductive lives because of what they're seeing uh, in the statistics. And what I hope to do, even by giving these statistics, is to also give hope and give joy because even though these statistics are out there, it is still our right to have children 
without fear. It is still joy that allows us to bring children into the world. And that joy should not be overshadowed by the fear that our lives are at stake. And so I want women to know these statistics because when you know what you're facing, then you can advocate for yourself. You can make sure you ask the questions. You can make sure you stand up for yourself. But I hate the fact that these statistics steal joy from Black women and Black families. So uh, it is it is hard, but holy work. And the majority of America sees they see maternal mortality as a political thing now because everybody's talking about it. Everybody's getting funding to do research. But the reason we're here today is to talk about how the Black womb has been affected. And again, maternal mortality is adversely affecting the Black womb. And until we get truthful about why these statistics are so terrible, it's almost impossible to close that gap or to eliminate it. So I'll just pause if there are any comments or questions. I did want to say first, Montreal, thank you for sharing. Amen. Thank you for sharing your experiences as a Black woman and a Black mother, because you know, just listening to what I was saying before, whenever you named how it was, you had a visceral reaction and still being able to then share voluntarily with us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, I was sitting here and I was like, not only is that a strength that's bigger than any of us here right now, um, but it's also speaking directly to what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, so... I hope people, I hope y'all who are listening understand that, that the fact that you control and share that, that is what we're talking about is how we continue to be here. Right. And trying to, trying to show up in the ways that we want to, and also trying to fight against the system of racism and white supremacy um, that also tells us that we have to be strong all the time. So there was, I'm, so I'd say thank you for sharing that. <laughs> you were talking about how you had preeclampsia. Um, my mom had that with me and with my brother. Mm. So, you know, in 1988, not how it was, it's not then how it is now. And That's so true. they didn't even know a lot about that. So um, I was born on June the 1st. My mom was in the hospital. She was bedridden. Um, starting the beginning of February of that year. She could not leave the hospital. She was in the hospital from February until the week after I was born because she was, they thought she was going to die because her blood pressure was so high. Um, Whenever she had me, she had to have a C-section or she would have died, period. Like would have died. Um, The doctor told her not to have any more children. He was a black doctor. He did not tell her that because he didn't want her to have children. He was like, you may not make it if you have another child because of your body. Um, But then my brother um, came along and he was her doctor again. And he helped her so much. Like He was there for her. I think about that with my mom and what she 
even had to continue to deal with after that because you go through these things, right? And you're still having to be out here in this racist, capitalist, patriarchal society. That is Black motherhood, right? Like, Marcy, what you were saying before, how you felt like you were seeing these white mothers just having their babies and leaving out 10 minutes later. That's exactly what white people are can always do. They can just do a thing and go about their lives and everything's fine, right? Because the system favors them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all an entire, it all connects to what we are living, right? Every bit of it. So I wanted to say that. And I also wanted to make this, this little comment with something you said before, Marcy, not to even get on this topic, but wanted to say whenever you were talking about people wanting to have weddings on the plantations in these places when these horrific things happen, right? It's like, would you go to Dachau and have a, a, a picnic or a wedding at Auschwitz or any of these places, right? And also bringing it closer to home, right? Let's look in the United States. Would you want to go and have a party at a venue where a shooting just happened? No, you wouldn't want to do that. Or would you? Some people probably would because y'all are sick people. But the point is, right? Like you wouldn't. So why is it? And and I'm outright asking for that. Why? Why are you okay with going and having a wedding somewhere? We're in that place right there in the corner. A black woman was literally raped continuously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is where. I want to say to listeners, this is why the work of CRT matters. This is where, like when people think that CRT, like there's two things that people have said. People have either said that CRT is racist, it's Marxist, it's this, that, that, and the other. It's none of those things. Secondly, if they don't believe that it's that, they believe that it's irrelevant to education. But there's a component in CRT that we skip over, which is the fact that there were these legal scholars who brought in the notion of intersectionality, which is what we're talking about, because it's one thing to be a black man and to face racism and biases and, you know, systemic pressure. But it's a whole different ball game to also have the box checked of I'm black, check, I'm a woman, check. And then for many women, I'm queer or I'm gay, check, or I'm trans, check, so, or I'm disabled, check. So like there are all these other things that stack against you and that's that critical race theory that then legal scholars take into the courtroom to see why is this law not working, right? Um, And so those laws we think are just for criminals, like it's got nothing to do with what we're talking about here, but laws is how we have the American Medical Association. There, there, there are laws involved with that, and there are certain creeds and laws that are—I forget what they're called—they're HIPPA or something like that. But whatever those things are, that um, those set of laws that if a doctor crosses those lines, he can—they can lose their license. That's set in the court. So, like, if those things are, if they're looking at those things, but they're not looking at intersectionality, things like black infant mortality and black maternal mortality get 
swept under the radar because they say the system's working because they're not looking at those things. So that's why the work of CRT is so challenged. Well, first of all, it's challenged because some knucklehead just wanted to find a way to further divide and frighten white people, right, with something that sounded scary. And that's the truth. And he even said that in, a, in an interview, that that's why he went on Tucker Carlson to scare white people, basically, to make sure that they had that vote. But the problem with that is that the ones who are liberal scholars who say terrible things about CRT as a liberal scholar, right? Which can be sometimes the worst kind of advocacy a a black person can get as a white intellectual who thinks they know something. And then you have them saying things like, well, CRT um, isn't important at the educational level. Well, it is because legally the textbooks that we get come out of Texas because Texas is the biggest state and that's in our legal system. Well, how do we represent these stories if the Texans who are making all kinds of laws to keep, you know, the Alamo some place of the historic relevance y'all need to quit going and get married there too but you know I'm just saying these things all are connected as Letty was saying from the very beginning there's a through line there's always a through line it's funny to say but it's the truth more than likely (laughs) it's my dog I'm so sorry if y'all hear my dog we hid the toys but you know she's She's something. I can't yell at her because then I look like a terrible dog mom. And we're talking about motherhood, so I can't do it. So she gets to have her way. Um, You can take all that out, Andrea, or keep it in, but my lord. Anyway, so when you have um, people who are challenging CRT or challenging what's learned in schools or challenging all these things, and they don't think it really matters to these other outcomes, what happens at the hospital, right? What happens, all that happens. And then these students who are medical students learn a narrative that black women are strong and black women don't have little pain. And, you know, so that's where that, why it perpetuates. And until we are willing to look at the foundation that was always broken because you can always trace it back to it's either because if there's a something broken in the system it's gonna be either because of enslavers or colonizers because you cannot erect a great country of freedom on a lie you just can't do it well i I, you know on the heels of what marcia is saying yeah absolutely it is um it the research, just like Letty says, the history shows us, the research also shows us. And it is something inherent to this soil, something that's inherent in this experience that changes us. I recently read an article that talked about how um, especially for looking at just women of color, immigration to this country affects your maternal mortality status. For someone who has migrated here as a first, you know, not even as a first generation, 
Say you have a grandmother that migrates here. Her maternal mortality rates are similar to white women in America. Her daughter, who was born here, okay, first generation here, her rates start to increase. The granddaughter now, okay, is this is the second generation. She's lived here. She was born here. Her mortal, maternal mortality rates are going to be similar to what we see now with other black and brown women. There's something about the system. There's something about the experience here uh, for black and brown women that not only uh, affects us emotionally, but it affects us physically. The experience of navigating American life for black and brown women affects us on every level. And it is not just enough to say, oh, being black. Being black has nothing to do with it, right? It's not about our skin color. It is about the experience that we have and how we show up in America. Or not even how we show up, but how we are seen, how we are viewed, how America are- shows up for you. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So Thank you know you for adding that. It, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it really mm-hmm. is looking at every facet of who we are and how we are treated in this country that has such a deleterious effect on our reproductive health. Wow. Does that play into, and I know we're getting close on time, but it's something I think it's important to talk about, Marcy, if we've discussed before with the infertility rates being at least twice that for black women, is that have something to do with this as well? The intergenerational trauma, the American soil. Can you speak into that a little bit, Dr. Quintrella? Sure. Um, And then I also wanted to add to that, right, is the fact that we have this lived experience, but um, sometimes the lack of support also Mm -hmm. plays a role because, you know, when you have trauma and when you have traumatic experiences, we've been taught, honestly, as a as a community to just keep those things to ourselves. You know, I had no idea that preeclampsia was even a thing. I had no idea that miscarriages and infertility was even a thing for Black women until I had my own miscarriage. Had no idea that the women that I did life with, went to church with, worked with, had these same issues because we don't traditionally talk about those things. And so even now, when you look at the infertility community, it is mostly white. It is mostly um, privileged, you know, to, you know, looking at like social economics that it is, it's women who can afford to have uh, treatments. Um, and we see that disparity. Yeah, we see that disparity um, because it is so expensive um, and it is not readily available for women who just don't have that type of income. And so um, those same issues that you see happening with, you know, maternal mortality and infant mortality exist on the flip side uh, when we are talking about issues of infertility. It actually makes me think about um, how our bodies hold trauma. I need people to understand that trauma is not just getting into a car accident, that it's much deeper than that. Right. I'm not saying that that's not traumatic. It is. And also understanding how the human body works, right? Like whenever my mom, before I was born, 
her going through traumatic things, her eggs inside of her. Right. And so that things directly affect me. It's passed down throughout, through DNA. There's a really phenomenal book. I mean, there's there's several, but um, I know post-traumatic slave syndrome discusses the sum, but I read that book alongside Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. And that book, the book, the 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 research, there are other people who have done similar research, but in which I dug into. But um when I was working on my uh second master's in conflict management, I learned about this. I, I chose for not just learning about the tangible skills about communication and conflict, but how conflict resonates in our bodies, uh, right? That's a whole other part that we don't discuss enough in this country. And this, there's so much that, that the United States and that the world hasn't decided to reckon with or accept or acknowledge right? Um, that they did. But I want more people to understand how trauma lives in us and how we hold it, right? And so when we talk about Black women and mortality rates and the issues that we have um, whenever we are giving birth, right? I've had people ask, like, oh my gosh, like, why? And I'm like, do you know what was done to us? You know what was done to our ancestors? You know what was... It's no coincidence that we, right, have these physical problems. It's not a coincidence when it, whenever you had, and it wasn't just enslaved black women who were experimented on. No, 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 no. Anyone, anytime, right? If there was a doctor that wanted to just test out some things, they could, they would pay the enslaver to allow it or whatever, because see, the thing was the enslaver knew they could just get another enslaved person and wanted to or more enslaved property, right? And so I want people to, as uncomfortable as this might be, I don't really care if it's uncomfortable for, for especially for uh, white people listening to this. Um, I want you to picture this happening. Picture it happening. Picture having to be a black mother who's enslaved and having to prepare your child from what they know is going to happen to them. Imagine that, right? Imagine how today you have mothers, black, brown, white mothers who are, having to talk to their children about school shootings. Let's just take something, right? That's just across the board, okay? That's fearful, right? That's so scary for you. Okay, imagine being a Black woman today, right? A Black mother, a brown mother having to, especially Black mother having to prepare and talk to their children about getting murdered by cops. And then imagine knowing that at any time, this white enslaver, man or woman could come into where you're living and take your child and rape them repeatedly. Like, I really want y'all to understand that and like get the hell out of our faces whenever we talk about racism and white supremacy and things. And then you try to compare No, you will never understand what it was like for black women, what it's still like for black women, period. You can try to empathize, but you're never going to fully understand um, what I would like to just say something to what you thank you so much, what you're um, calling us to do mm-hmm. to envision this, see the picture of it. It seems to me that America is able to have great creativity and imagination with every and anything, despite a black woman or black people. Um, meaning, um, you know, I, I am thinking about Dante Stewart's words uh, earlier. I don't know, maybe yesterday, just kind of like we we can envision God as Aslan, as a lion, but we can't envision God as a black man. Or a black woman. 
Um, yeah. We can we can envision um, it, then even if we go to love, we can envision love between um, people who turn into wolves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but we can't and vampires mm-hmm. or bears, but we can't envision people who are black loving each other. So what you're saying is such a, a great call to to consciousness. But but I also want people to know what she's asking you isn't something that's foreign to you. You have mm-hmm. had to think about what a thing does to the essence and at a cellular level of a thing many times before. That's why we kill cows differently now. For those of us who still eat meat, that's why we don't kill cows and he Huge herds anymore. We know that we take them in a room, one in a line where they can't see that the other one has been murdered, and we stun them very quickly behind their head. They didn't used to kill cows like that. We started killing cows differently because we understood, oh shit, the trauma of how the cow is mur- it's killed in source for our food is in the meat. The meat is actually more more vi- or uh, more um, fibrous. <laughs> Isn't this crazy? So, like, we understand this from an animal standpoint. We we have done the thinking that Letty is asking us to do. And so, if you're listening to this, what I want to appeal to you and say is, you've done this before. You have thought of this before. You can do it again. Just think about black people. Well, we do. Um, white moms do it all the time. Mothers do it all the time. They say, "Well, what happened to that child?" Must be the parents. I mean, we know we we are able to assign generational um, legacy when we want to. We love to do it with Adam and Eve. We just love that story of Adam and Eve. Well, why is the world messed up? Well, because Eve bit the apple. But when we say, why is this country messed up? And black people say, well, because you came over and took land that wasn't yours. And then you took a bunch of people from, what's wrong with Africa? Well, you took a bunch of their people and you put them in chains. Some of them didn't even make it over here. And then you you kept them in chains for hundreds of years. And then you wonder, why? Why are we divided? What's wrong with black people? Nothing's wrong with us. Not a dang thing. There's nothing wrong with black people. You know, we and you're able to have empathy and interest in teen pregnancy as long as it's white and it's on teen mom. As long as it's on one of those reality teen shows and it's white girls and then you figure out, oh, well, they come from a broken home. That's why we can care about their birth and pregnancy. But when it's a black girl who is nine times out of ten, this is true, she's going to not just have the baby. She's going to have a community that makes sure that she goes to school. They're going to watch that baby, make sure she goes to college. They're going to be about it. I mean, the statistics show that too, which why probably that's why there's no teen black mom show because they're not falling apart under that. They're not sitting wondering how did this happen to us? No, they're like, okay, well, this is what has happened and this is what we're going to do, right? And maybe that's just not interesting for America to see. 
but we the imagination thing we are very imaginative when we want to be it's but it seems to like it it dumbs down our imagination and right. that, that's why i'm calling and saying don't believe the hype mm-hmm. you use wild and brilliant and beautiful imagination all the time it's just in the context of everything but black people it seems to be very difficult to implement it at that point and so and then i want you to hear that that that's why i said i i i would want to be in the room for the person to say yeah we just don't believe that black women feel pain because i want you to hear your words and i want to i want to see your face believe that shit i want to see your face as you believe it because i know on a fundamental deep level we know lies when we hear it as humans, yeah. we know lies when we hear it. And so I know you may even tell yourself that you believe the lie, but you know the truth. And that's what I, I really feel like this calls everybody up. And I know I I feel like Dr. Yababuya right now being like, I'm going to die on white supremacy. But I mean, like, honestly, that's why white supremacy is so awful and ugly, because it robs the person who is required to hold it in their heart of their humanity. It robs you of being able to do a multi-layered analysis to employ imagination over a whole throng of living, breathing, beautiful beings. It stunts you. It stunts you. And I'm going to be bold and say, I'm saying this as the voice of God. God wants more for you. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I like using the word white preservationist because so many people balk at supremacist, right? Because they think clan robes. I'm like, if you're a person preserving white space, white autonomy, white hierarchy, you're preserving a white narrative. You're basically someone who is like taking an old relic house and preserving it and saying this is a national um, um Building, you know how you can get those plaques, and you're putting a plaque on that, and you're saying we can't touch it because that's enough. That's what to me, being a white supremacist, white preservationist is. You preserve all these white idols and tomes and narratives because you feel that if someone came along and knocked it down, even though it's derelict, that that means something to your own history. And again we really do know how to reach back into history because you have people now always going out into the field, like going out into fields and pretending to reenact the civil war. So we, we, we have imagination and we, we know these things to be true. We really do. And I think if you're a person who's gone to Monticello or you've gone to one of these, basically Monticello, because I think besides the Whitney um, plantation, they're the only ones who have redone. But the thing about Monticello is you can have a choice. You can take the slave, the slave history tour, which is a trip to me because I'm like, that should be the only tour. I mean, what other tour is there to have? Or you can take like, you can take different kinds of tours at Mont- Monticello. And you have to think about this. We want to blame, I, I wanted to say we want to, we keep mentioning the men, the, the male enslaver, but you have to remember women were enslavers too. White women were enslaving 
having property is the only property that they were a lot of times it was the only property they were allowed to have it was part of their dowry they would inherit slaves they'd be given a slave an enslaved woman to an enslaved child even to um as a wedding gift to help them set up their home for some of them they had an enslaved woman who could take care of their husband because they didn't want to sleep with them. They were fine with him being in the hen house, so to speak, as long as he wasn't bothering them, right? And they would look the other way. So we we saw 12 Years a Slave where the woman's all jealous and angry at, you know, um, Patty. But really, most of the time, they were okay with it because most of those marriages were arranged marriages to increase property. So it's not like... Um, they were just all falling in love and being all, you know, it was a love triangle. Um, Sally Hemings wasn't a love triangle. She was the closest relative to his dead wife. And in, sister. Right. And in his broke down crazy mind, you know, Jefferson being the elitist as he was, he wanted the best closest thing to a white woman that he could get without the drama of having to marry again. So it was Sally, right? But we want to romanticize that too and say that they were in love. They weren't in love. She did she had very little choice. She could have stayed and France, where war was about to break out, right? What was going to happen to her there? Who was going to take care of her? He made promises if she came back with him that her children wouldn't live like the other children. And there was just very little. It's, it's a no win. It's like, it's like so many of the, the people on the boat. Like, do you want to go to this new country and see what might happen? Or would you rather just jump over it and go to the bottom of the sea? of the ocean, you know? So we just really need to really check how we're imagining our history. And, and the reason we're getting married at these plant, these um, work camps is because there's this ideology about Scarlett O'Hara, who was terrible, who was just terrible, y'all. It's a, I, there's a candle company that I love. They make candles about books, but I had to stop buying their candles because they had a Scarlett O'Hara candle. And I wrote them a letter and I said, how come y'all have a James Baldwin candle? I'm sure Baldwin lit some candles. It's all these kind of things. So when I get upset about things like, I want to love Maya Angelou's quarter. I just don't want George Washington on the back of it. And I'm going to say he on the back of it. He ain't on the front of it. My on the front of it. He on the back of it. I want him off the back of it. And it's something that they could so easily do. Just take him off the back of the damn quarter. And well, it's, it's so very hard to your preservist. <laughs> right. And it's so lot more than what you're saying about the history and memory. There's such a clash. There's such a clash always. You just make things up because that's what you've always done. This country's always needed a reason in a way to protect whiteness. And even to what you were saying about the teen mom. I'm from Brunswick County, North Carolina. So teen mom, Janelle, is from Southport, which is in my county. It's a big county, a huge county. It's one of the biggest counties in the state, but I didn't know her or anything like that. But she's from Brunswick County. So whenever teen mom came out, right, people are like, oh, my gosh, Janelle is from Southport or whatever. But that's in itself, too, right? How 
white girls and white women can be looked at as, oh, well, they're broken. They just need help. That's the same. That is the same um, rhetoric that was used to allow the idea of the black male brute to be to still be in existence like it is today. Right. Like, oh, my gosh, we've got to protect white women from these black beasts. Oh, we've got to protect black women because you you know, black men are going to want them. We got to protect them. And that's why you have lynchings that happened, lies that were made up, right? Saying that black men and black boys, children raped white women. And really the rapists have always been white men, but we don't want to go and have that conversation today because then that take me to police officers. And I'm not trying to do that right now, but I just wanted to put that there for people. But honestly, right? So in Harriet Washington's book, Medical Apartheid, she talks about how white women were angry at at black women, even though it was always their white husbands who were wanting the black women and were also raping the black women. And so then that's why whenever I talk about the suffragist movement, this is also a clash with like history and memory is, um, oh my gosh, well, white women just wanted their rights. They just wanted to vote. <laughs> no, 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 no. They are mad because their property was taken away from them and they weren't able to have enslaved people anymore. That's what they're mad about, actually. That's what they're upset about. But that's what we're, we're, we're taught, right? And so then you have these, this, this propaganda, right? And you have these pictures of the dark-skinned Black woman, of, of the Fannie Lou Hamers versus the light-skinned Black women like the Dorothy Dangerages. Like you, you have this difference. So it shows like, oh, well, who's more palpable and who's not and who should reproduce and who shouldn't and all of the things and who's wanted more when really it's always racism. It's always white supremacy. And um, one other thing I want to say, Marcy, to um, what you were saying about the quarter. Right. It's like y'all want to do everything except actually love and honor black women. Y'all want to do everything but that. So y'all want to tell me we're going to put my Andrew on a quarter and then you're going to try to ban books and things by people that are similar to my Andrew. How, make it make sense to me. But it's no coincidence that this, that this is coming less than a year after the CRT issue. There is never a coincidence with timing in this country. Never. We are the most performative mugs Listen. in the history of history. Yeah. Like <laughs> we, we will do stuff to try to make us look good in a second because we want to feel good. We want to feel good while doing wrong. And by the way, that's impossible. So at some point, <laughs> there will be a stop gap to that shit and you'll feel it. Yeah, exactly. Please, I want to keep letting you talk because I want to keep listening to you but i told you we wouldn't go two hours and here we are so y'all are brilliant so thank you so every week we're going to try to end with a joy and celebration question even though we this has been one of the heaviest topics the question is where do you see god reflected in the history of both infertile and fertile black mothers i'm happy to start this off um That made me smile because regardless of whether you actually physically birth another human being, you are created in the image of God. And that, by that virtue, you are a creator. So whether it happens physically or whether it happens in the lives of those you touch, whether it happens in the stories that you tell, you are a creator and that is your God-given birthright. That is your legacy as a child of God. So it doesn't have to look like birthing a child. You can birth vision, you can birth dreams, you can birth legacy. Um, you can tear down strongholds because of your creative power. 
So that would be my answer where I see God. Beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Quintrilla. I see God in trying to figure out the simplest way to put this in the, the continuous choice um, that black women make to become, to, to be and to become, because that in itself takes strength and not to go with the stereotype of the strong black woman, but the strength that, that our ancestors, something bigger they had to hold on to the, the, the hope, the promises, but also the pain, all of that though, right? It's not just about the, the, the feel good stuff. It's the being in the valley physically and mentally and emotionally, but people wanting to understand, well, how did they make it? Uh, well, have you ever listened to gospel, right? Have you ever, have, have, have you been in a room with someone who is black, like my dad, who has prayed and you felt God move? I can only imagine that that's, they had to have something, right? For us to be sitting here right now on January 21st, 2022, for us to physically be here, right? To physically be here right now. Somebody had something in them that was not just their physical body. It was something more. And so that's what I think so many of us as Black women, when we have children or not, still have now. Whether we're able to have children or not, we still have something in us that allows us to love and to give and also to receive. I love, love, love this question. I see it all the time and just the nurture of black women there's just nothing like it and it's not it's not that we are better at it or anything like that we we don't have a different gifting for that so don't ask us to be your nannies that's not what i'm saying what i'm saying is that there's a different intention with it and it's something that living in my new neighborhood i have felt everywhere i go it doesn't matter where i go there is some black woman who is there to receive me and there's just nothing like it like a mother we have um a store near us called um the silver room it's 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 but it's black owned it's black operated, black women who are mostly the workers and owners of this store. And when you walk in, there is something about, you feel like you've crossed the threshold. And I imagine that this is much what it must have felt like for me to walk into this store where everything in it is representative of my life from the jewelry, to the bags, to the candles, to the books, to the pins, to the, um, there's a DJ at the back, every single thing. And they have this, and they have artwork up. And one of their best-selling things that they have on printed, you can get printed on anything, is everything you love in this country is from a black woman. It's something like that. <laughs> it's because of a black woman. And there's something about the way that they embody that that feels very womb to me. Like it feels like a womb. It feels like an emergence and a birth and a cocoon of some sort. And I can't really put my finger on it. But what I think it, it must be like is I often imagine Harriet Tubman, who didn't have children, she adopted, I often imagine that Harriet, when there's this picture of Harriet with family um, and she's older and I think this is what it must have felt like when they went to, Can I think it's Canada, you tell me, Letty, um, where she had 
um, one of the places where she took a lot of enslaved people to begin a new life. I would imagine that them getting there feels a lot and, and there are people who know where they've been at and what they've been through. And you, the, the feeling of that must have been so incredible. And to me, that's like a God wonder that, that it's just such a God wonder that these things exist in this America that would so want to destroy that joy. And it can't, it just can't, it can't be destroyed because black women are going to figure out a way, no matter where we are, to make, <laughs> to make a family. It, it just doesn't matter where we are. There's going to be an auntie. I'm guaranteeing you that there's somebody's going to be there and take up the the mantle of auntie, of mama, of it's why I love the, the show polls so much. It's just who we are. It's just how we roll. And there's something so nurturing and fabulous about that that it can only be God. It's 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 God. That's what that is. All right, Shay, you have the final word. So I, I was thinking a lot about this. Thank you guys for all of your brilliant answers. And I thought to myself, I imagine where I feel that black womanhood, black mothering, um, I, I see it. Um, I see a reflection of God. I would say, I imagine that um, <laughs> we are such a disappointment to God. I imagine that God looks at us so many times and it's like this foolishness and the brokenness, the ridiculous way, the ridiculous ways that we interface with each other, that we've consistently treated one another. And I imagine God's like, don't you get it? Like y'all are all of me. Y'all are all of each other. And you guys will refuse to get it. So this is how I imagine God. And yet I imagine that God shows up big, holy, beautiful, loving, consistently. Despite all of the, re everything that we do shows God, however you view him, her, non-binary God. This God keeps showing up with love and hope for us, though I imagine we do not give God much, much data to lean on, in fact, to keep hoping. And to keep believing that we will be something better than we are and that we have been. And like that is the black woman to me. The black woman has endured and does endure brokenness, fracturedness, how she is treated, how she is perceived, what happens amongst her community. Yet she keeps showing up with love, with hope, with wisdom. She's not foolish. She's not ignorantly hoping. She believes in the mystical, but she believes in something that's so much bigger than anything she has ever even seen. And to me, that's God. To be able to hold the belief of eternity and you ain't ever really ever seen it, that's something. And I feel like we live our lives from that space. And anybody who gets a black woman who works for you, who is your mother, your auntie, your friend, you get some magic, man because you get something that shows up despite what it has been shown. And that's what it is to me.
As we wrap up this episode, I have an important ask of my listeners. The goal of my podcast has never been to make money for myself. The content has always been free. However, as we move forward in our journey, I'm realizing more and more the importance of paying black women for their time. Because black women have a history of not getting paid for their time and work. I truly like to honor each of the guests for this series and compensate them for their time. I'm asking listeners to consider donating a minimum of a dollar for each time you download and listen to an episode in this series. Now, if this is a stretch to your finances, there is of course no pressure. Give what you can give. Donations can be given via Venmo to my Venmo at Her Story Speaks, and all money given in the month of February will be divided equally among the guests for this series. Also, please go check out the show notes for this episode at HerStorySpeaks.com, where you'll find the links to sign up for my guests' newsletters and their Patreon accounts. You can also find links to their websites, to their shows, and to their podcasts, where you can listen to them more in detail there. And finally, if this episode spoke to you, please consider sharing it with a friend or on your social media so others can listen and learn from the voices and stories of Black women.